Hello, and welcome to Probable Causation, a show about law, economics, and crime. I'm your host, Jennifer Doliak of Texas A&M University, where I'm an economics professor and the director of the Justice Tech Lab. My guest this week is Patricio Dominguez. Patricio is a research economist at the Inter-American Development Bank. Patricio, welcome to the show. Thank you, Jen, for having me. Today, we're going to talk about your research on the interactions of victims and offenders, focusing on robberies of bus drivers in Chile. But before we dive into all of that, could you tell us about your research expertise and how you became interested in this topic? Yeah, cool. Uh, so b- before doing my PhD, I studied civil engineer uh, with a major in transportation engineering. Um, and then I was trained as a labor economist, and I, which is where I became interested in the economics of crime literature. Well, I, I remember that uh, during my PhD, I was curious about the, the relationship between cash availability and crime. And given my background as a transportation engineer, I think it was kind of natural to start looking at a huge reform that happened in Chile and that I had studied very closely, uh, which in addition, I thought it could um, offer a, a good way to show how potential victims and offenders interact. So the idea was like, usually we as apply economists focus on the effect of a particular shock and how it affects crime opportunities or how law enforcement agencies uh, work. Um, And we interpret the unobserved variation in crime as driven by the shock, right? And that allows you to identify the effect of, for example, how uh, law enforcement agency works. So... um, all those papers, I think, measured, and, and, and you can think about the papers that measure the effect of a new sentencing regime, for example, the effect of prisons, police, among others. In all those cases, we should usually interpret the observed change in uh, as driven by uh, potential offenders reacting to, to the shock, let's say the new sentencing regime, the police presence, the new set of opportunities available. Uh, but something that is much less emphasized in the literature is a potential endogenous reaction from the victim size, that uh, it could also explain part of the uh, variation that we observe in in crime victimization. So basically, I thought this reform could offer an interesting case study to analyze this important feature in crime studies. Your paper is titled, How Potential Offenders and Victims Interact, a Case Study from a Public Transportation Reform. And as you mentioned, you frame this study as being about the role that would-be victims play in determining whether crime takes place. And you highlight in the paper that much of the emphasis in the economics of crime literature is on the offenders themselves and on various criminal justice actors. So as a field, we've spent a lot of time measuring the effects of things like policing and punishment. So before your study, what had we known about the role of victims in this process? Exactly. So that idea motivates me a lot in this project. So one person that noticed this issue very early in the economics of crime literature was uh, Phil Cook. But many scholars have emphasized that this has been sort of understudied in the empirical literature. So the idea is a kind of uh, fundamental sort of source of uh, endogeneity in the crime literature. So the idea is like crime rates are not only the result of offenders' action, but also the interaction between their choices and the choices of potential victims. You may include here uh, legal enforcement agencies. Um, so the more important intuition uh, for my research is that the level of effort exhibited by potential victims to protect, uh, let's say, the 
the property, uh, that determines the availability of crime opportunities, which in terms depend on the level of risk they perceive. So, and, and you can also see this in the criminology literature. For example, some insights from Ron Clark, the professor at Rogers, uh, he has advocated for the need to focus on criminal event rather than offender's choice uh, when studying crime. So this makes more explicit the need to incorporate what um, he calls factors surrounding crime. So the idea that beyond a willing offender, uh, there's an actual victimization requires a, a, a vulnerable target and a, an appropriate opportunity. And um, from the empirical literature, there's also a, a few examples that I would like to highlight. For example, there's a paper between Phil Cook and John McDonald on, on the business, the effect of business improvement district in LA uh, when, when they show that uh, the actions adopted by private actors can have a substantial effect on crime and crime control policy. Uh, there's other papers that, for example, emphasize how victims can alter the set of criminal criminal opportunities by uh, hardening an attractive target. There's this paper in the Economic Journal by Ben Follard and Jan van Hours. I hope I pronounced that well, that they evaluate the, a, a large-scale intervention uh, in the Netherlands. It was a regulatory change in the that required the all new built homes to have uh, burglary-proof windows and doors. And they find a significant reduction in burglary risk in new homes. And similarly, there are uh, a couple of experiments uh, evaluating the impact of low-jack track devices in vehicles. L the low-jack is a radio transmitter that tracks, uh, it's a tracking device, which is highly effective to recover a stolen car. Um, so therefore, it may reduce the reward from stealing, you can think. Uh, and there's a, an, a paper by Ian Ayres and uh, Steve Levitt in the QGE. Uh, they exploit the differential timing in the arrival across the US cities, and they found a large reduction in auto theft. So, it's important for this setting that they observed that the installation of the device was unobservable for offenders, which makes them interpret the results as a general deterrent effect. And it's interesting to note that a few years later, González Navarro, who is a professor at Berkeley right now, he studied the effect of LOJAC in a slightly different setting in Mexico, where only the four uh, car uh, that explicitly incorporated the device. So in this case was observable, the installation of the device that could track the car. So, and in this case, he finds a reduction in low jack equipped vehicles. Uh, but as opposed to Levitt, uh, he interprets the, 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 uh, as a, the, the effect of the observed effect as a specific deterrent effect. And um, finally, I think there's a few papers regarding the interaction between offenders and victims uh, and whether they can shape level and the nature of crime. Uh, there's a, a couple of work by Brendan O'Flaherty, the professor at Columbia, and Rajit Sethi, for example, where they show that, for example, perception about race can account for racial disparity in violent robbery and murder. And um, there's some research done by Chandler McKillen and Erdal Tekin and Cheng and Mark Hextra uh, in the context of the U.S. Stand Your Grant laws. Uh, where they raise serious concern about the ability to increase public safety by 
encouraging potential victims to resist an attack. So there is some uh, combination of a study that have uh, uh, addressed this relationship between victims and offenders, but it, I think, I believe this is something that is, should be uh, a study more in the literature. Why don't we know more than we do about the role the victims play here? What do you see as the main challenges in figuring out the causal effects of victims' behavior on crime? Yeah, that's a good question. I think there are two main challenges here. One is in terms of the identification and, and the other in terms of the availability of data. Um, in terms of identification, uh, um, as in many other problems in economics, you would like to identify shocks in order to uh, uh, isolate the effect of potential confounders. But even in some cases, uh, you can think when you have a shock, you can have like the possibility that many potential agents can react to the shock in a different way. So it's hard to interpret uh, the result as simply, for example, driven by a supply of offenses, which is what typically do in economics of crime. Uh, as I said, crime rates are not only the results of uh, offenders' actions, but also the interaction between their choices and the choices of potential victims. So we should include this an endogenous reaction in the, uh, uh, for example, from the I think that's something that is well addressed in the literature is the endogenous relationship regarding law enforcement law enforcement agencies. Uh, there's a lot of very careful studies in this regard. For example, this, the, the papers that address the effect of police on crime, uh, uh, Ditella and Ernesto Chagroski in the ER, uh, others, uh, Draca and Steve Machin, Click and Tavarok, they, also, they have focus on particular shock to the police presence and how they affect crime. Uh, there are other papers that focus on the changes in police staffing. Um, they're very well addressed, these sources of indigeneity, but regarding potential endogenous reaction from victims, it's, 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 it's hard to identify a particular shock. Uh, and the main limitation here basically has to do with uh, data. Uh, uh, because data about victims is really, really hard. So victims can adapt in many uh, different ways. They can harden an attractive target. They can alter their travel behavior, behavior to avoid, for example, a specific area that they consider dangerous, or they being out at certain hours of the day. They decide, for example, to purchase specific goods in order to be not being victimized or minimize the cost of uh, associated with victimization if victimization happens. So there's a lot of potential reactions that makes hard to uh, model and for an, uh, a researcher to analyze or to incorporate in the in, in the evaluation. So I think it's a combination of these two challenges where I believe the, this particular research that we're talking about right now is, is may, may contribute. So because we have, we have a, a shock that affects uh, victims' precautionary measures, and uh, I believe we have data uh, at a high level of resolution to identify the effect of the change. Okay, so your study considers bus robberies in Chile and how a couple of changes to the bus system there affected the robbery rate. So let's start the story with a bit of context. What did the bus system look like before the reforms that you're studying? Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, let me spend some minutes uh, explaining the details because I think it, it matters a lot. So what happens? Uh, in 2004, the government in Chile was decided to transform the bus system in Santiago that uh, was ranked as the worst public service at that time. So during the pre-reform system was pretty much, the, the system was pretty much a consequence of a series of reforms that took place beginning in the, in, the in, the, in the 80s, 
they have like a highly privatized and highly deregulated system. So, for example, the industrial organization of the system was uh, uh, very atomized. Uh, that what makes very hard to make any kind of a coordination. So, uh, Santiago, uh, which is a, the city here, uh, Santiago Metropolitan Area, has a population between five and six million people at that time, um, and and the uh, public transportation uh, uh, was uh, served by buses. I think was the main uh, mode of transportation. Twenty-five percent of all trips uh, uh, were made in buses, and uh, the system uh, has like eight thousand different buses that they were serving three hundred eighty roads, uh, and you have like more than three thousand operators. So it's just a bit more than one operator per bus. In the system, so highly atomized system. Uh, so perhaps the most notorious uh, feature of the system was a lack of integration in every uh, possible dimension, and that was exemplified by the payment mechanism. So uh, and, and let me highlight this uh, fact: one of the byproducts of the lack of integration was uh, what uh, experts in public transportation call the war for the fare. Uh, the war for the fare is a system where drivers even within the same company serving the same road, they compete for passengers, basically because their salary depends on the number of riders. So this on-the-street competition uh, was also responsible for a very inefficient road structure. Typically, a bus road connected two points of the city's periphery. Uh, on average, they were uh, 60 kilometers uh, long. Uh, so as a result, there was an oversupply of service in highly congested area. For example, in downtown, 80% of buses circulated uh, with notorious consequences in terms of traffic congestion and air pollution. So, And, and, and more related to my paper, the, this affects the uh, working condition of, of drivers and the payment system. So, uh, And let me explain something uh, a bit about that. So, uh, Passengers pay the, in this system, passengers pay their tickets with cash inside the bus. Uh, and they pay that to the driver, who on, on top of driving, they had to receive cash from passengers, calculate correct change, and finally provide uh, riders with a ticket. It was like a very complicated system. And um, all the money uh, was collected in the so-called uh, peseras, which is a, a Spanish word for fish tank. Uh, that name came precisely because everything was very visible to everybody. So you were sit on, on, on the bus looking at the money that the driver were collecting there. Uh, and imagine like riding 60 kilometers with this uh, box uh, along with you. So in, in addition to um, uh, under this cash payment regime, uh, drivers were paid uh, based on the amount of money that they collected. That obviously uh, it was related to the number of passengers that ride the bus, uh, which made drivers responsible to protect cash. So this uh, uh, open boxes was a very attractive target for cash robberies. But perhaps, and unsurprisingly for many of us that can recall how the system worked, uh, there were not too many incidents. Uh, but uh, the, the one that happened were very violent ones, uh, and sometimes with coverage in the news. So part of this is because uh, drivers adopted some protection measures uh, 
some of them were not the optimal ones. So personally, I can recall uh, many of them carry a, carrying a weapon inside the bus. Uh, in Chile, a gun possession is still very uncommon, but you can recall that at that time they were carrying a sort of baseball bat or even knives to protect themselves. So and, 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 and as a footnote, let me uh, recall this is for the, the American audience that uh, Ronald Clark has a couple of papers like uh, uh, showing the salient role of public transportation on crime. And he has documented uh, some study that, that were done in, uh, uh, related to this. So uh, there's one that report, for example, uh, the, this kind of robbery of fair re revenue to bus driver uh, became a serious problem across many cities in the, in the U.S. in the 60s and early 70s. And uh, after two consecutive shootings of uh, bus drivers in Washington, D.C. and New York City in 1968, the solution proposed was a common anti-crime tool that you can nowadays see everywhere. So the introduction of this exact change for collection boxes, like uh, there were along on board secure boxes uh, into which the fare were deposited. So in my experience as a user of uh, public transportation, this kind of device, device are uh, in, uh, in place across many cities in the US. But the implementation of this device was not feasible in, in Chile, in the Chilean context, because of the uh, a, a specific industrial organization of the system that was very atomized. So, and I, and I think that is like a, 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 an enough uh, background for the, how the system worked in the, in the past. And then in beginning in 2005, things started to change. So what were the reforms that were made to the system? How did they come about? And when exactly did they take place? So the main goal of, for the government was uh, trying to modernize the, the system in a broad sense. Uh, and they believed that integration was key at that time. So they decided, for example, to have like a, a new industrial organization and bus roads. So they divided the city in 15 zones and each area was serviced by a single company. Uh, the entire industry was franchised through an international call for tenders in 2004. Uh, and in order to avoid on the street competition, the companies were required to uh, pay fixed salaries to the drivers. Uh, they also decided to uh, uh, implement a new bus fleet and integrate the system with Metro. Uh, in order to integrate the system with the Metro, uh, the subway, uh, they needed to create a new payment system uh, that can track whether people transfer from one system to another because they wanted to reduce the cost of transfer from buses to metro. Uh, so they implemented this uh, a debit card uh, uh, in all metro and buses, which is a, a sort of the same card that you can see in, uh, I don't know, in uh, the BART uh, in San Francisco Bay Area, for example, the Clip card, Clipper card and in DC. In, in, in many different places, you have this debit card and you can put cash in advance and you can uh, write the system. Uh, so let me tell you something a, a bit more about the implementation because this is key. So the original plan was uh, to start all at once in October 2005, uh, and that date was decided because there was a few months before the presidential election. Obviously, there was a huge plan, uh, and they wanted to have uh, uh, some credit for that. So however, that uh, they realized that at the deadline was fast approaching, uh, and in view of some technical difficulties, they decided to delay, uh, such as the delay of the uh, arrival of new buses, the government decided to postpone the full implementation of the, of, of the program. But, uh, and, and this is key, the, the government had already signed contracts with the new companies. 
So in order to avoid penalties related to delays stipulated in the contract that were signed back in 2004, they created the so-called transition period that starts in October 2005 to February 2007. So a bit longer than one year. Uh, so that period would allow new companies to get use of the city. It's important to notice that some companies were foreign companies. So that was something that they were put some value on. And that could make some time to have new bus fleet and the debit car full in place. So during this transition period, the new companies were allocated to the old bus roads. So in terms of the operation, this meant no major change for passengers, same bus roads, same payments, payment mechanisms, still in cash, but an important change in terms of the driver salaries because the new companies were mandated to pay fixed salaries. So, and finally, in February 2007, uh, the most significant changes were adopted all at once. This was called the Big Band Day uh, for the new system, um, where uh, all these new 15 service areas were uh, serving the entire city and the old roads uh, were no longer uh, in place. And also the cash system uh, would fully eradicate it and the only way to enter the bus would be with this uh, debit car. Uh, so to sum up, there are three periods that are important here. So the pre-policy period, which we we're going to call before 2005, October 2005, then the transition period, which is a bit longer than one year, from October 2005 to February 2007, and the post-policy period. So three periods to keep in mind for that research. So just to summarize that very briefly, for the October 2005 change, the key is that you're switching from a system where the drivers basically get whatever money they're collecting from passengers to a fixed salary. So they get paid even if someone steals the bus fares. And then that February 2007 change is getting rid of cash altogether. So as an economist, when you heard about these reforms, what did you have in mind as the potential mechanisms through which they might affect crime? Yeah, yeah, this is important because uh, I thought about uh, a lot about this. Uh, so, well, any economist, I believe they, they cares about like uh, the extent to which agents adapt to these uh, to new regimes. So, uh, where, uh, for example, new incentives are in place. So as an applied economist, uh, uh, we also care about whether uh, some theoretical reaction can be observed in the data. So in this case, when I first thought of, about this uh, as a potential research project, I was curious about whether this provide a, a good case study on how offenders and victims interact. Uh, for the same reason that we believe a uh, uh, $100 uh, bill doesn't lie on the ground for too long, I was curious about whether something similar in this particular market for offenses has any empirical basis or not. So in particular, what I wanted to see is how the changes in pro propensity to protect the cash, which was induced, as you said, by the new driver salary regime, uh, that affected or not the robbery incidents inside buses, and whether or not the offenders, on the other hand, adapt uh, the level of violence they exhibit to this new resistant regime. So basically what I uh, expect in theory, it was uh, during the transition period, an increase in incidents uh, driven by uh, drivers no longer protecting their money, uh, but also a decline in the level of violence uh, exhibited by the offenders who no longer need to use or to threaten the drivers with, uh, for example, a more lethal weapon, uh, let's say. 
And then for the switch to the cashless system, how should we think about that? Yeah. So in, in this paper where I focus, it's, I use that as a um, sort of validation because here the, the response would be more mechanical. So um, you might be worried that in, in this case, I'm not exactly observing the incidents affecting drivers, but the, the thing that I that, that is reporting the data, and we can go to the, the, the details about the data later, but what I observe is incidents reported in buses, but uh, the incident could have affected the drivers or somebody else. So I use that period in order to validate uh, uh, that. But importantly, what I observe is like a, a huge decline in the uh, uh, cash-related robbery incidents uh, when the cash was uh, as a payment mechanism was replaced. This is important because people were still carrying cash uh, in their pockets, in their wallets, uh, but uh, obviously it was very hard to offenders to steal cash when it was not available in these open boxes. So obviously cash-related robberies declined uh, during that period. And, and, uh, and, and one of the, uh, uh, and, and I think the new version of the paper, I tried to look at the potential um, displacement to other areas. Uh, uh, and, and I use that also to validate the, the effect. But basically, as you said, uh, I, I observe a huge decline in cash robbery incidents. So you're going to use three related approaches to measuring the effects of these reforms. An event study, so basically a pre-post design looking at effects immediately after the change, a difference in difference analysis where you have a control group, and a triple differences analysis where you have two control groups. So walk us through each of these strategies and what you see as the pros and cons of each. Cool. Yeah, so uh, basically I have two shocks. Right, one related to the transition period and another one related to the uh, uh, post policy period. Uh, so, and and in the first one, I'm interested in how the shock in the salary policy, where drivers were changed, the, the, the driver policy was changed from being paid to based on the number of passengers to fixed salary, uh, whether that affects the level of the nature of incidents reported in buses, and um, whether the second shock, where cash payment were eliminated or not uh, was eliminated, uh, whether that affect or not the level of, uh, of crime that we've served. So I combined three uh, strategies that I believe they complement to each other. For example, the first one, uh, uh, the interrupted time series. I look specifically at the evolution of cash-related robberies in buses. So this strategy might be valid if the pre-policy period offers a reasonable counterfactual of what would have happened after the reform. Obviously, this is uh, limited uh, since one can think that many other uh, contemporaneous changes uh, could also have affected the evolution of cash-related robberies in buses. So, for example, changes that uh, were experienced in the metro system that could have affected the bus ridership. So this uh, approach although is insightful, is kind of limited in, in terms of the, or have a strong assumption. So in, in, in addition, so in order to isolate uh, the set of, a set of, of potential confounding factors, I also implement a difference in difference strategy. The idea here is to control for, uh, controlling for non-cash robberies, let's say robberies of cell phones. Uh, this kind of incident, if this kind of incidents follow a similar uh, pattern that cash-related robberies. And if we believe that this pattern was not altered during the period for any other reason than the change in driver salary policy, 
uh, and the payment mechanism and the payment system, uh, we can identify the effect of the reform of each of the shocks. Um, and I show that, for example, that during the pre-policy period, uh, both type of crime, cash-related and non-cash-related uh, robberies, they follow a similar trajectory, uh, but they gradually diverge during the transition period. And finally, uh, cash-related uh, incidents suddenly drops at the beginning of the post-policy period. Um, and, and finally, I evaluate the analysis using a triple differences approach, uh, considering the proportional, proportional split between cash and non-cash incident reported on buses, relative to a um, similar variation of serve, uh, regarding incidents reported on street and public spaces. Uh, I finally run a set of robustness check, such as you mentioned, an event study design that provides a more transparent description of the temporal evolution of the estimates. Also, I reproduce the main analysis using um, municipality level data. And finally, in terms of statistical inf inference, I correct for zero correlation following a recommendation of the classic work of uh, uh, Marianne Bertrand, Duflo, and Moulin Nathan collapsing the data at the period level that, rather than the weekly level as, as, as before. So that's the idea of the three approaches. Great. And just to highlight for folks, one of the real values I see in the difference in difference analysis is that it helps control for changes in ridership. So you might be worried that all of these changes to the bus system might affect the number of people riding the buses, and maybe that's what's driving the change in crime rates. And so controlling for non-cash robberies on the buses is basically controlling for the number of people on the buses, which addresses that potential concern. What data do you have to do all of this? Yeah, so I have access to uh, administrative data at the, at the incident level. And, and, and I believe, and I'm sure you would agree with me, that this is very important to study crime because you can have a lot of detail about the incidents. Um, in the data that I have, the, they're all uh, crimes reported to the police between 2005 and 2010, which is like a long enough period to analyze the effect of the reform. And uh, each record for each incident, I have information about the time, the day, and the location where the crime was perpetrated. Uh, importantly, the, in terms of the location, I was able to identify bus as a specific category. Uh, and the type of good that was stolen, um, and that allows me to identify whether the, the, the main thing that was stolen or attempted to be stolen was cash or not. Uh, and another important feature of the data is, is this is collected by the Chilean police, which is uh, different to other places. It's a very centralized agency. It's, it's a national police, and it's the only one responsible to uh, collect this data. Uh, for example, the director of the Chilean police is designated by the president. So I think that makes me confident that this data is uh, very consistent over time and across space, in a, even in a large city as Santiago metropolitan area. Uh, and just to give you a context, Santiago uh, is, 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 is probably the, the, the city with the lowest uh, homicide rate in Latin America. It's similar to many European cities, uh, but has a very high robbery rate uh, which also allows me to focus on a very specific type of event uh, because you have enough variation here to observe, uh, such as the robbery that happens inside buses. All right, so let's talk about the results. What do each of your empirical strategies tell you is the effect of the first reform, moving to fixed salaries for the bus drivers? 
Yeah. So in in all the three cases, the results are pretty consistent, and uh, uh, the 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 move to a fixed salaries, uh, uh, the effect is pretty large. I found uh, uh, an increase between 130 and 150 percent relative to the uh, uh, level of serve during the pre-reform level. So we basically changed from 12 incidents per week in the city to 28 incidents per week uh, on average. Important here is like the the effect during this period is very gradual, and for the post policy period uh, or the, uh, the the effect of switching to a cashless system, uh, again I compare here to the pre policy period. I could have compared to the transition period, but I wanted to be very conservative in this case. And what I found is a reduction on the 70% of total incidents reported in buses, which I, I believe again is pretty large. Yeah. And uh, if I remember correctly, the effects for the triple differences were a little bit smaller. And this got me thinking. So you can imagine some general equilibrium effects here, right? That is, if you no longer have to carry cash to use on the buses, you might just be less likely to carry cash with you everywhere. And if no one carries cash with them anymore, then robbery everywhere is less productive. And so it might be that your second control group in the triple, triple difference analysis which is cash robberies outside of buses, they could be treated somewhat by these changes as well. So in other words, you could imagine those cash robberies falling too, which would bias your triple difference estimates downward, and that might explain why they look a little smaller. Does that sound right to you? Yeah, yeah. Although the 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 difference is is not large enough to think about like the huge spillovers, for example, to other places. But But yeah, you are correct. You are correct. Yeah. And then, as you said, it did seem like a gradual effect. So when you move to the fixed salaries and bus drivers no longer have an incentive to protect the cash with their lives uh, because they don't care, they're getting paid anyway, right? Uh, you see in the graph a slow, gradual increase in robberies over time during this period, which suggests some learning on the part of the offenders, at least. Is that your interpretation, too? Exactly. So I, I, I was curious about like this figure. Uh, one of the things, by the way, so I, I, I encourage the, the audience to look, take a look at the paper because everything also I try to report like uh, a specific figures to be very clean about like where the, the, or very transparent about like the, the identification strategy and the, and the results as well. So by basically you can observe there and you can take a look at the event study that I report the the story that I believe is going on here is like the the offenders are learning about this new uh, protection measures that the new salary regime regime induce on drivers. So this is so as you might expect the the increase during the transition period is not sharp. Uh, it was gradual over time. And uh, but on the other hand, the change to a cashless system that was implemented all at once that was pretty sharp. So I try to show, uh, illustrate those uh, graphically as well in the paper. Yeah, I agree. The graphs are really nice here. It's always nice to see a paper where the graph basically tells the whole story. <laughs> you know, uh, it's like the numbers in the tables are sort of secondary. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I tried to do so. Yeah. You also considered the level of violence involved in the robberies that do take place and how this is affected by the reforms we're discussing. So tell us more about that analysis and what you find. Yeah, yeah. So that's also relates to a 
sort of prediction that I, I have in a, in a very simple model that I developed in, in, in the paper. So during the transition period, you have uh, that basically drivers no longer have incentive to protect the cash. Uh, 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 so my question here is, uh, well, do offenders also adapt to this specific margin? So basically drivers no longer need to carry a weapon, for example, to defend themselves. So And, and, and they may oppose minimum resistance in the case of an attack. So the empirical question is here is like, do offense, offenders also adapt to this potential response? Uh, and, and, and to simplify the discussion, um, I show that conditional on offending, the probability of using, let's say, a firearm or think about any other more lethal weapon, uh, conditional on offending, the probability of using a firearm should decline during this period. So the basic in intuition is that the, the benefit from using a firearm declines because victims are less likely to exhibit a high level of resistance. And uh, actually, I test that in the data, and what I found is like, although crime increases, uh, the probability of being attacked by a firearm uh, declines by 8%. Putting it all together, what is the punchline of all these analyses? What do you see as the main takeaways from this paper? Yeah, so first I would like to emphasize, and this is something that I put in the title of the paper, uh, this is a case study, So, uh, but we can learn a lot of things from case studies. Uh, I believe it's clear from the paper that sometimes a considerable portion of the level of crime we observe is because of the things that uh, potential victims do to prevent crime to happen in the first place. So to me, the main takeaways of, of the paper is uh, first, um, Private behavior is an important and probably usually omitted variable in understanding victimization. And uh, second is the idea that um, although victims can do a lot uh, to avoid being victimized, it may come at a high personal cost. Uh, for example, more violence exhibited by offenders. This is, I believe, important for welfare considerations. And uh, I noticed, uh, for example, it has been recently emphasized, uh, Phil Cook, who carefully read the paper, he, he sent me this paper uh, about robbery that he recently wrote, where he claims that, well, one goal is to reduce crime, but another important goal is uh, harm reduction. So this additional dimension of welfare, I, I believe, should be taken into account when evaluating anti-crime policies. Has any other research come out since you first released this paper that adds to our understanding of the role that would-be victims play in preventing crime? Yeah. You know, one that caught my attention in, in the sense is a, is, a, is a recent working paper by Aaron Shalfin and his colleagues and uh, Yupen. They, in this paper, they analyzed the effect of public street light outages in Chicago. Uh, by the way, I have a similar work, but looking at the effect of blackouts in Chile, which is a, a different scale, but it's similar in terms of the story. And um, Shalfin and his colleagues, they find uh, uh, no effect on crime uh, in the same uh, street segment where the public street light outage uh, happened. But they found important spillovers on nearby street segments during this outage. So it is interesting. They claim that this suggests that crime follows a pattern of human activity. But in other words, you may think about like this, this which is what I believe, and I, I talked to Aaron about this, that precisely uh, what makes the case for this unexpected uh, results 
it could be driven by endogenous reaction from the victim side. So this is something this is something that we have talked about a lot, and 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 I and I believe that relates in that sense. So what what is going on here is like maybe victims are reacting as well in this. So that's why we're only observing the number of crimes, but that's the result of the interaction between them. So and and I believe that's a careful study that should be considered in in uh, in the future as well, because this story may connect to that. What would you say are the policy implications of your results and the other work in this area? What would you tell policymakers who are who are listening and maybe thinking, should we leave all of this to victims to fend for themselves? Yeah, well, that's important because I believe that in, in a sense, what the paper suggests is, is precisely caution with regard to policy that uh, seeks to, to reduce crime based on increasing uh, victim's propensity to resist. Uh, um, such policy may also induce a substantial increase in the level of violence that uh, offenders exhibit. Um, so, as I say, the, the, the welfare consideration here I, are I direct, I believe. So, people do not usually think in terms of these second order effect when evaluating a policy. The, the idea that one goal is reducing crime, but another uh, that in some extreme cases can be inclus- even more important is to reduce harm or reduce violence. So um, if, if you want to extrapolate the results, uh, you might think about a, a controversial issue in the US, for example, that I believe to some extent uh, relates to this paper. Uh, but the, for example, the rationale for gun availability uh, in the population, uh, I, I believe that, that that's why this paper connects with the research done regarding the Stand Your Grounds law by McClellan and Tekin or Mark Hextra in the Journal of Human Resources. My message would be like, don't put the protection measures in people's responsibility. This should be provided by a public entity that should care about everyone here. Otherwise, you you can have unintended consequences. Yeah. It also strikes me that a takeaway from both your paper and some of the other ones in this literature is the possibility that new technology will make these decisions easier, right? So being able to switch from a cash-based system to one where everyone carries around a debit card is one example. Lojacks and cars are another example. I'm also thinking about security features and cell phones. So if you steal someone's iPhone these days, it's probably password protected and you can't do anything with it. And so that dramatically reduces the incentive to steal a smartphone like that in the first place. And so it's interesting to think about how these kinds of technological innovations might help us avoid some of these problems. They eliminate the trade-offs. Exactly. So one thing is technology. And uh, and, and another thing, for example, that I, I thought about a lot here. So, for example, let's talk about why in the in, in the old regime, in the public transportation, or maybe what is going on right now in many other cities in, in Chile and Latin America. So, why they don't implement these secure boxes? Uh, uh, they don't implement that. They still have, uh, they carry cash, the drivers carry cash. And part of the problem here is the lack of uh, regulations. Uh, because you may think about both the drivers and the owners of the bus, uh, have incentive to keep the cash system, uh, cash payment system uh, in place, uh, even at the expenses of driver's risk. Uh, from the owner's point of view, you, you, uh, this system encourages drivers to control fare evasion, which is a common problem in public transportation. And potentially, the cash in place 
could help drivers to increase their salary by allowing riders to ride without a ticket. So a light uh, regulation in the entire system provide little incentive to uh, implement this very simple and all crime prevention measures. Uh, so and the final product that you have like is a persistent presence of a highly attractive crime opportunity there and, and nobody or maybe nobody can do something really to fix that. And what's the research frontier here? What are the next big questions in this area that you and others will be thinking about in the years ahead? Well, this is obviously a hard question, but I imagine that with the availability of new sources of data, we might be able very soon to start modeling uh, at a much more precise way uh, people's behavior. Uh, so so to, to the extent that we can use, for example, real-time geocoded cell phone data, uh, perhaps we might be able to to, this is something that I, I think might be interesting to look at, uh, to decompose the effect of the police presence uh, that has been very uh, well established in the literature. But you can decompose the effect in terms of induced responses on victims uh, from potential uh, induced responses on the offenders. So I believe this could potentially improve uh, even more the way that we allocate police officers in the cities. Um, another challenge is how to include uh, victims' behavior uh, more carefully in cost-benefit calculations. So presumably there is a lot of heterogeneity in terms like the precautionary measures that uh, different people adopt. Uh, and these are costly measures. And from the welfare perspective, we should take that into account, especially if we care about inequality and we care about like uh, the cost that different people are adopting. Uh, people, some some people may feel uh, particular unsafe in, uh, for example, when and, and and I believe my background in transportation can uh, can uh, testify for this. But there are some people that are much more. Uh, uh, they, they, they don't trust, for example, in public transportation because of the level of insecurity that they feel about that. So considering the measures of the victim's behavior in the cost-benefit calculation, I think it's important when we care about the welfare consequences of a, a new policy change or uh, evaluating different reforms. My guest today has been Patricio Dominguez from the Inter-American Development Bank. Patricio, thanks so much for doing this. Thank you, Jen, for having me. You can find links to all the research we discussed today on our website, probablecausation.com. You can also subscribe to the show there or wherever you get your podcasts to make sure you don't miss a single episode. Big thanks to Emergent Ventures for supporting the show. And thanks also to our Patreon subscribers. This show is listener supported. So if you enjoy the podcast, then please consider contributing via Patreon. You can find a link on our website. Our sound engineer is Carolyn Hockenberry with production assistance from Elizabeth Pancotti. Our music is by Werner and our logo is designed by Carrie Throckmorton. Thanks for listening and I'll talk to you in two weeks.